We continue looking into our general theme of Christian viewpoints based on what Jesus said to his disciples immediately prior to leaving them on this earth. You remember he said that they were left in the world, but they were not of the world, but they were sent to the world. We have been trying to explore the world in which we are left. We're trying to find out what it is about this world that we're not to be part of, but we're trying to be clear as to how we can be sent to it. It's relatively easy to settle for one of these three things, a little more difficult to settle for two of them, a tremendous challenge to settle on all three. What does it mean to be left in, not of, but sent to the world? The world in which we live is clearly political. And if we're going to think realistically in terms of being left in this world, we've got to think in terms of what it means to be left in a political environment. Now, as soon as we start talking about politics, we have to recognize that in our particular culture, politics in many instances, as Marshall McLuhan has said, has degenerated into images and sound bites. And not infrequently, we'll find people don't really want to go further than the soundbite or do respond to anything more than an image. And yet, if we're thinking in terms of being Christians in this particular political environment, we need to do better than get past the soundbites, and we need to do more thinking than simply looking at images. In other words, we need to be thinking theologically about our politics. Some time ago... A good friend of mine was invited to South Africa as a guest of the South African government. And he knew that I visited the country on a number of occasions, so he asked me for sort of a preview of South Africa. Now, this was long before de Klerk and Mandela, long before the dramatic changes that took place in recent years. And so I told him what I had observed about the political scene in South Africa, and off he went. He came back from his trip, immediately asked me to have breakfast with him, and as we sat down for breakfast, his opening remarks were, Stuart, you couldn't be more wrong. You could not be more wrong about South Africa. So I said, all right, put me right then. And so he began to explain the whole political philosophy of the white government of South Africa. And he explained the principle of apartheid, and he explained how it came from their Calvinistic roots, etc., etc., all of which I was familiar with. After he had finished his explanation of what was right about South Africa, I asked him how many black townships he'd visited. I asked him how much he was aware of what it was like to be an Indian in South African culture, etc., etc. And he, of course, had not been taken to any of those places. And so after we discussed it for a little while, I asked him this simple question. I said, well, now that you've worked out the politics of South Africa, where does your theology fit into this? Where does your theology fit into this? And he said, well, I've got to work on that next. And therein lies the problem for many Christians. They arrive at a political position, and then they try to fit in their theology, if, assuming that they even get that far. In many instances, the problem is that many Christians will be Christian for a part of the day, and then they'll be political animals for the rest of the day, and never the two shall meet. Now, what we're thinking about in this series of messages is how we can be Christians in the world of which we're a part, and that, of course, includes the political world. 
Now, there are various responses on the part of Christians to the political scene here in America right now. There are Christians who would adopt a conservative political stance, but would not necessarily have any sense in which it is theologically informed. In other words, they are Christians, but they are uh, conservatives. Uh, This perhaps is best illustrated by the man who had the car with the bumper sticker on, one of which was, Rush is right, and the other one, Jesus is Lord. And there was quite a gap on the fender between the two. Then, of course, there are the Christian liberals. And the Christian liberals are people who are very activist in their approach to politics, but their political agenda is very different from that of the Christian coalition. They're very much concerned about the environment. They're concerned about the military power of America. They're concerned about relationships with third world countries. They're concerned with people who are politically and financially and economically disadvantaged, etc., Etc. And then there are the Christian indifference. They tend to adopt the attitude, don't vote, it only encourages them. <laughs> and uh, I'm afraid that there's a major segment of American culture that is comprised of these kind of people. For instance, more than one half of all Americans cannot name one of their U.S. senators. More than half of Americans cannot name one of their U.S. senators. Only 6% of Americans know the name of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Do you know who that is? Well, you're in the 6%. (laughs) It's easy to have some fun about this sort of subject, and I don't want to get any cheap laughs or make any cheap jabs, because that is not the point. So you've had your chuckles. Now let's settle down to look into this Christian view of politics. We look at it from three perspectives. First of all, a biblical perspective. Secondly, a historical perspective. And thirdly, a practical perspective. From a biblical perspective, we recognize that in the early chapters of Genesis, there was a real confrontation between God and the people he'd created. They decided that they were going to build a tower, that it was going to reach to heaven, and it was going to be symbolic of their self-sufficiency. It was going to be symbolic of their independence of God. In other words, they were taking matters into their own hands. And God decided they were getting too big for their boots. And so at the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the people into all kinds of people groups with different languages. And those of us who've traveled around the world have had many, many opportunities to regret the Tower of Babel. The fact of the matter, however, is that various people groups were established by God's action. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, we are reminded that Abraham was pulled out of the people group that he belonged to and transported into an area where there were other people groups. And God made of that people group a new nation. And he said that this nation that would be comprised of the progeny of Abraham would be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. So God took action and formed people groups. And God formed these people groups into nations. Now, we know from the particular details of the nation of Israel that God built into that certain governing structures. So they had priests, they had prophets, they had judges, they had kings. This was all ordained by God. Now, when we get into the New Testament, we have a more specific statement concerning the ordinance of government or of political structures. 
And perhaps the best known statement of that is found in Romans chapter 13. And I'd like to read a few verses of Romans chapter 13 to you. Now, as we read this, please bear in mind that Paul is writing to the very small Christian community in the imperial city of Rome. They were regarded as a radical sect of Judaism, that the Jews at best were tolerated by the Romans until they couldn't tolerate them anymore, and then they would just kick them out of Rome, as happened quite specifically, and we read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. So they were a very small minority. They were deeply distrusted. They were living in a very precarious situation, and they had no political representation whatsoever. So their situation was very, very different from the situation in which we find ourselves today. Nevertheless, there are certain things that we can learn from what Paul taught them. This is what he said. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So what do we discover from this? We discovered that God has ordained certain people groups, he has formed nations, and he has put into the nations certain governing structures. When we see how we are to respond to these governing structures, what do we learn? We learn that the powers that be, or the authorities that exist, are established by God that the authority that they wield is divine authority delegated to them. Accordingly, those who are in the governing structure, the political structures of nations, are seen to be God's servants. They are God's servants because their task is to create and preserve an, an environment, a national, a political, a social environment in which people can live freely and fully as God's creatures. In order for them to do that, they are given certain authorities. And they are given authority to do two things, to reward that which is right and to punish that which is wrong. This is all divinely ordained. God is into politics. God ordains there should be people groups. He ordains there should be nations. He ordains there should be governing structures. He ordains that there should be divinely delegated authority in the political structures. And he ordains that the people who come under that authority should treat the governing authorities with great respect and submission. They do this because they recognize that the people in those situations 
perhaps to their own surprise, are servants of God. They are here to function in a way that would further divine purposes. Accordingly, people are required to respect those in the political realm out of conscience. Now, there's a sense in which we respect, with a healthy respect, those who have the power to make life difficult for us. He's not saying that. He's saying we respect those in the political realm as a matter of conscience because we recognize what God has ordained and how they're fitting into a divinely ordained structure. Not only that, we pay taxes because we recognize that if these people have a task to do, it will take money. And the way they're going to get the money is that we pay our appropriate amount of taxes to finance their activities. And thirdly, we are required to fulfill our obligations as citizens, as members of this political structure, to those who are in positions of authority. Now, there's a very quick overview, if you like, of the biblical perspective on politics. Now, there's another side to it, however, that we need to understand very, very clearly indeed. You will notice in the beginning of Romans chapter 13 that it talks about the authorities that exist. The older versions of the Bible call it the powers that be. And that is a term that has sort of found its way into rather general usage. Now, there's a debate among theologians on this particular term. There are those who say the powers that be are simply man-made political structures. That's all it's talking about. So that the powers that be, these man-made political structures, have been established by God. But others, for good reasons, say, no, when Paul is talking about the powers that be, He is certainly talking about the man-made political structures, but he is also talking about spiritual forces that operate through these man-made political structures. So that when we're thinking in terms of the powers that be, we're thinking not only of the man-made political structures, but of the spiritual forces that operate through them. Now, where in the world do we get this idea from? Well, let me refer you to the epistle to the Colossians. In the first chapter, the Apostle Paul has a superlative statement of the supremacy of Christ. Let me read to you from verse 15 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So far, so good. Here, the thrones, the powers, the rulers and authorities, listen, both visible and invisible were created by Christ. Turn over to chapter 2. And verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. That is simply underlining what is already said. Verse 13, however, talks about Christ's death on the cross. That is profoundly significant as far as our subject is concerned. Listen carefully. Verse 13. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now listen. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So now what do we see? We see that the powers that be are created by Christ, both the visible ones and the invisible ones. We recognize that he is the head over all power and authority and rulers, but for some reason, it was necessary for Christ on the cross to expose and to defeat the powers that be. Why? Because those powers that be, those man-made political structures, have forces operating through them of tremendous spiritual power, many of which are totally opposed to the purposes of God. Now we have a clear example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul says that if the rulers of this world had had the right kind of wisdom they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this world would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And who were those rulers? They were imperial Rome and the religious structures of Judaism. They were structures, divinely ordained structures, that somehow or other had got in the grip of institutionalized evil. And institutionalized evil was operating through these structures. Now, what does that mean as far as we are concerned? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that our struggle is against all kinds of rulers and powers and authorities and spiritual dynamics. But he also points out to us in his teaching that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are spiritual. So what is he saying? He is saying that we live in a world where there are all kinds of people, groups, and nations, and systems of governance, and political structures, all of which are divinely ordained, to which we should respond with great respect and honor, etc., etc., as a matter of conscience, but we must be very, very careful because these same structures can become the very institutionalization of evil itself. Now, that is a very salutary word. That is the political system viewed from a biblical perspective, as I understand it. Now, it's not too difficult for us to understand that in extreme cases. For instance, I doubt very much if anybody here would say, well, it's pretty obvious that the political structure of the Third Reich in Germany in the 1930s became the very institutionalization of evil. I don't think many people would have too much difficulty in saying, and Stalinist Russia, the Soviet Union, as political structure became the very epitome of institutionalized evil. So yeah, sure, I see what you mean. The big question as far as we're concerned is this. Is it possible that evil can operate in a participatory democracy? 
Or is it possible that evil can function in a capitalistic free enterprise political scheme? Perish the thought, you say. No. We've got to be prepared to look at this and ask ourselves, are we looking at political structures and political systems from a biblical perspective? If we do, then I would suggest to you that we will have a considerable degree of ambivalence as far as the Christian and relationship to politics is concerned. On the one hand, we will recognize there is a very real legitimacy to the whole structure that we must be part of, but there are clearly things that we have to recognize in it that we will have absolutely nothing to do with and we stand against. In other words, we're in it, we're not of it, but we're sent to it. So much then for a biblical perspective, a breathless, as far as I'm concerned, summary of a biblical perspective. Let's move on quickly now to a historical perspective. And I'm sure this will bore you out of your socks, so we'll get it over as quickly as possible, but I think it's helpful. A historical perspective. How has this worked out as far as the church's history is concerned? And remember that those of us who don't learn from history are damned to repeat it. And so it is important that we not only have a theological perspective, but a historical perspective as well. In other words, in the old days, they weren't totally stupid, and they did learn some things. They did some things right that we can emulate. They did some things wrong that we can avoid. In 311 AD, a dramatic event took place in the history of the church when the Roman Emperor Constantine was converted to Christ. And that changed things dramatically. Up until that time, the people in the church of Jesus Christ had battled imperial Rome and they had had a rough ride. Many of their finest people, their greatest people, were assassinated, they were murdered, they were executed. They had a rough deal indeed. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, you will find there a tract, which I believe is written by a pastor in exile to the church from which he's exiled, where he's commiserating with them about the horrors and the terrors of imperialistic Rome, and is encouraging them that Christ will win in the end. And this is clearly the situation that the church lived in up until about 311 AD. Then, when Constantine was converted, the scene was changed dramatically. So now instead of the Christians being opposed by the powers that be, the Christians were actually encouraged by the powers that be. And it became the in thing to be a Christian in Rome up until the fall of Rome. After the fall of Rome in 410 AD, up until the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation, the church became incredibly powerful. So that now we have an entirely different situation. The Christians are using the political powers to further their own ends. Now notice the three totally different approaches. Number one, Christians opposed by the powers. Number two, Christians encouraged by the powers. Number three, Christians using the political powers for their own ends. Then came the Reformation. And out of the Reformation, all kinds of things which we're well aware of. But three particular strands of thought developed as far as Christian involvement in the political scene is concerned. The Anabaptists, they said there are two kingdoms, 
The kingdom of this world that is political is man-made and it's corrupt. And the kingdom that is to come, which is demonstrated in the church, which is of God, and it operates on the basis of the Spirit. We live in the one. We have absolutely nothing to do with the other. We flatly reject it. We're in it, but we're not of it, in other words. The Anabaptists, of course, took this position, and their descendants to this day, some of the Mennonites and the Amish, people like that, and some of the fundamentalists would have adopted pretty well that attitude. The second approach was that of Luther. Luther said that there are two kingdoms, that God rules over all, and that we have to live in both of them, and there'll be an awkward tension between the two. And sometimes we'll find that we have to respond one way in one of the kingdoms and another way in the other. But it will only be in the eschatological future that the kingdom of God will be established. Now, there are people who would follow in the line of Luther's thinking, as would be those who would follow Anabaptist thinking as well. Then there was Calvin. Calvin believed that the church had a tremendous responsibility because it was the arena in which God was at work and that God was at work in the church to move out into the world. And so he believed that the church should have a profound influence on the political structure of the day. What he endeavored to do in Geneva, of course, is well known. Now, if you were to go around Elmbrook today, you would find, to their surprise, some descendants of the Anabaptists, some descendants of Martin Luther, and some descendants of John Calvin, as far as their politics are concerned. Why? Because they're all wrestling with this business. What should we as Christians be doing as far as this political system is concerned, which is clearly ordained by God, but has been infested with and and affected by the powers of evil. Well, let me give you, in closing, five practical suggestions as far as this is concerned. Five practical perspectives as to how we can begin to handle this kind of a situation. First of all, uh, let me point out to you that they're going to be very simple to follow because they are simply A, B, C, D, and E. A, acknowledge the validity of political activity. That is a practical conclusion to which the Christian can and should come. The Christian should regard himself or herself, among other things, as a responsible citizen. Now, there's a degree of conflict even in saying that. Many of us are familiar with the idea that the Christians belong to the age to come and they're temporary residents in this present evil age. That is a, a motif that we're familiar with. We sometimes sing the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Well, that is true. On the one hand, we're to be regarded as pilgrims, but on the other hand, we're called to be citizens. Now, as citizens in a participatory democracy, such as we have in the United States of America, there are vast opportunities for participating in the political scene. It is therefore appropriate for the Christian to recognize the degree of detachment 
because they know that this world is not their home, they're just passing through. But on the other hand, there has a degree of involvement because they recognize that the political structure of this land can, at their best and noblest, be beneficial to humanity. And they would want to ensure that they are contributing to that which God has ordained for the benefit of humanity. Therefore, I think we can say categorically, it is most appropriate for the Christian to acknowledge political validity. Secondly, B, we need to beware of political idolatry. What I mean by that is that we need to be aware of the fact that if we engage in the political system at whatever level we get involved, we've got to be very, very careful that we do not assume more of government and of politics than is appropriate. Number one, beware of the political idolatry that seems to assume that politics can bring in the kingdom. We've got to come to terms with the fact that politics can make society tolerable And that's it. That only the work of the Spirit of God can transform people's lives. Now, that does not mean that we should not be interested in making society tolerable. It does not mean that we should be disinterested in working in that which God has ordained so that people can live freely and fully as divine creatures. But we've got to recognize that the political system will never bring in the kingdom of God. Now, there's always the tendency, once the Christian becomes active in politics as a Christian, that they've got this underlying sense that somehow or other, we're going to make this a Christian nation. In fact, some of the sound bites that we get give you the impression that they're going to return America to its original Christianity. My reading of American history is that it never was a Christian country that there was never more than one-third of the American population that was committed to Christ. And incidentally, that's probably about the same fraction at the present time. So let's be careful that we don't get caught up with this idea that politics can bring in the spiritual kingdom. The second thing that we need to be aware of is this. No party has a corner on righteousness. Now, there are conservatives and liberals. You, You probably Notice that. At their best, what are conservatives and liberals all about? My understanding of it is this. Conservatives conserve what is good. Ray, let's hear it for the conservatives. Who can possibly object to people who want to conserve what is good? What about liberals? Well, my understanding is liberals liberate us from what is bad. Yay, let's hear it for liberals. Who can possibly be opposed to liberals who are committed to liberating people from what is bad? In actual fact, if conservatives are committed to serving what is good and liberals are committed to liberating from what is bad, it seems maybe both of them have got a point. It also seems to me that maybe both of them could be wrong. Because there's always the awful possibility that conservatives can conserve what is bad. And there's always the possibility that liberals can liberate us from what is good. And you and I know perfectly well that we could spend a long time giving evidences of both those things happening. Simply to say, realistically speaking, no party has a corner 
unrighteousness. The issue then is what's good and what's bad and who decides. And that's where we need to be theologically informed. The third thing to be aware of as far as political idolatry is concerned is that politics can bring out the worst in people. Have you noticed? And that one of the sad things that happens is that when well-meaning Christians get into the political arena, at times they get dragged down and the worst in them comes out. Let's be realistic about politics. No less an authority than Richard John Newhouse, the author of the acclaimed book, The Naked Public Square, said this, politics is the business, more art than science, of governing. It has to do most essentially with power, getting, keeping, and exercising it. I am aware that this is not a very elevated view of politics, he went on. Politics can involve nobler works and even visions, but they are not essentially what politics is about. We should resist being taken in by inflated and romantic views of politics, a salutary word. Now, this, of course, does not negate what we've already said. We should acknowledge political validity. It does give a word of warning that we beware of political idolatry. Thirdly, C, we should commit to political activity. Every Christian, I believe, should be involved at some level in some kind of political activity. Minimally, minimally, we should be praying for those in authority over us. Most of us, I would guess, are familiar with the statement that Paul gave to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read it to you. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, of course, remember that he was writing to Timothy in the reign of Nero. So you can't just say, well, you know, if Paul had the kind of bunch of politicians we've got, no way he'd have prayed for them. He had a whole lot worse than we've got. He had Nero. And he is saying that the responsibility of the Christian is to be praying for those in positions of political leaderships. And I would submit to you that that is the minimal political involvement of the Christian. I think it would also probably be true to say that for many Christians, they're much more comfortable ridiculing politicians than praying for them, particularly the politicians that don't necessarily agree with their own ideologies. If we accept the fact that it is legitimate to commit to political activity, minimally praying, then optimally we can participate. We should be voting. We should be voting intelligently. We should be voting consistently. If there's somebody for whom you can in good conscience vote, vote. And if there's nobody there for whom you can in good conscience you vote, it seems to me, don't vote as a matter of conscience. But take this as a privilege and a responsibility. Commit to political activity. D, develop a political philosophy. Now, very often our political philosophy is based, as we've already said, on images and sound bites. I would suggest to you that our political philosophy should be based on theological reflection, if it is going to be a Christian involved in this world. We studied a book called Saints as Citizens, the last chapter. We came up with six principles that we can utilize in developing a philosophy 
a political thought. Let me give you those six principles. Number one, we should be concerned about social justice. Number two, we should be concerned about respect for life. Number three, we should be concerned about reconciliation. Number four, we should be concerned about active compassion. Number five, we should be concerned about wise stewardship. Number six, we should be concerned about the empowerment of the underprivileged. Now, you don't have to agree with those, but there are six theological principles, all of which you'll find have a solid biblical rationale. And I would submit to you that there's a framework in which we can develop our political philosophy. E, and finally, we should express political sensitivity. By this, I mean that there should be a willingness to try to understand the opposing point of view. And a very, very important thing has to be that when the Christian begins to engage in the political arena, that they remember that they are Christian first and political animals second. And that the challenge is to behave in a Christian manner. Somebody came to me and said that they had had all kinds of problems as a Christian in the political realm because many Christians come into the political realm giving the impression to other people that they are right because God is on their side and the other people are wrong because clearly God has nothing to say to them. And he said this has caused tremendous problems not only for people trying to engage in the political arena but has caused great problems as far as the testimony of Christians is concerned. If we're going to think in terms of the Christian involved in the political arena, Christians of all people should be sensitive to the confusion that exists in people's minds. They should be ready to listen to another point of view. And they should be willing to relate to the person desperately concerned that when the relationship is over, there will not be a bad taste left in that person's mouth as far as the name of Christ and the cause of Christ, and the application of Christian principle is concerned. So there you have it, some thoughts on a Christian view of politics. Let's pray together. What an exciting world we live in, dear Lord. What a challenge it is to live Christianly in an environment that is not always amenable, that is not always responsive. We fully recognize that we don't live in anarchy. We fully recognize that we don't operate under tyranny. In fact, we are the most incredibly blessed people. Perhaps because we know little of anarchy or tyranny, but we tend to take for granted what we have. And accordingly, don't think of what it means to live Christianly in this particular environment. Lord, you've told us, among other things, that we should have respect for those who are in positions of leadership, and you've told us we should pray for them. And we'd like to do that right now. Some of us might have a little difficulty doing this because we've got such a distaste for some of the people. We so fervently disagree with the things that they stand for, that none is outside the scope of your grace and your love and your concern. And none should be beyond the reach of our prayers. And so we pray for the president and the vice president. We pray for the Supreme Court justices. 
We pray for the local representatives in the House of Representatives. We pray for these men and these women. And we ask whatever their spiritual condition might be, that they would recognize that they are in a very real sense servants of God. That this is a nation that claims to be a nation under God, which means that it is a nation that accepts it comes under God's judgment, under God's evaluation. It includes them. And so give them a keen sense of not just simply operating on the basis of what the polls say. Give them a sense of not just doing what they think people want to do and say what people want to hear said. Give them a sense of operating under divine mandate, that they are truly part of a nation under God, and so are we. And that we might live our lives in all our relationships, not least in the political structures, as if we are people under God. That we would conduct ourselves in such a way that your name would be honored and your purposes would be furthered. We pray, dear Lord, that as we think through these things, we might have a clear sense of what it means to live in the political world because we are left in it. But not to be of it, but to be sent to it and to know our role and to function in an appropriate manner. Hear our prayers and let our cries ascend unto you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.